Oh, okay. You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. You're listening to Hold That Thought. Thank you for joining us. In 2005, the United Nations set aside January 27th as a day of remembrance. Every year on this day, countries around the world commemorate the victims of the Nazi era. This International Holocaust Remembrance Day, we're featuring a conversation between two historians, both of whom study violence and memory. Annika Valka is author of Pioneers and Partisans, an oral history of Nazi genocide in Belarusia. She is joined by Jay Winter, a well-known scholar of World War I, whose own family history includes many deaths in the Holocaust. In the following discussion, Volka and Winter discuss their work, their motivations for studying war and genocide, and the challenges of remembering victims of violence. Well, my name is Annika Valka. I'm a historian of Russia and the Soviet Union. I work here at Washington University in St. Louis. And today I'm joined by Professor Jay Winter, who is the Charles Still Professor of History at Yale University. Um, his work has focused on World War I and its impact on the 20th century, but he's also very widely known for his analysis of war remembrance. Um, very recently, for example, he also has devoted his work to the memory of the 1915 genocide of Armenians. And he's published nine books, at least, um, and edited or co-edited 13 books. And there are more than 40 book chapters to his name. So we can draw on much material um, to talk about his work um, today. But I also wanted to highlight that Jay Winter has participated in a number of endeavors to make his work available to a larger audience um, beyond um, the academy. Among others, he was the co-producer, co-writer, and chief historian for a PBS series on the Great War and the Shaping of the 20th Century, a very successful series that won a number of awards. Um, and he also has built a museum of World War I um, in France. And in the following interview, I would like to ask um, Jay Winter um, about his interests as a historian and scholar, um, but also about some of the concepts that he's been using and developing over the years, and that for many of us who are interested in memory, the history of World War I, but also European history more broadly, um, have had a large impact on our work and on our thinking. Um, so just to get us started, over the years you have studied, researched, and written about a number of issues, including the social and cultural history and the memory of World War I, demography and migration, but also utopian moments in the 20th century. Um, in one of your articles, you noted that, quote, history is a way of thinking, memory is a way of feeling. The reasons historians choose a subject are frequently personal and subjective. So my question would be, what drives you um, as a historian? Is there a common thread that binds these very different themes together or something that constitutes a common core? I think none of us... Uh knows the shape of our lives while we're living them. So the elements of um, impulse or focus in the work that I've done over 45 years as an historian were opaque or simply unknown to me. Uh, now I can look back and see that there are singularities. But while I was writing, uh, the initial, or I would say the uh, the central problems that I've always looked at are very small. And if anything, I'm a miniaturist at heart. I like to build bricks uh, and then put the bricks one on top of each other until they hopefully create an edifice that has a shape and also a, a meaning. Um, 
But now, now that I'm, I'm 70 and at retirement, I think what I can say is that I've spent my whole life uh, circling around the Holocaust without ever wanting to go in uh, to the heart of darkness. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that was that my mother's family was wiped out in the Holocaust, and it was a dominant uh, part of my very early life. Mm -hmm. um, so the subject of uh, war and violence uh, is a deflection from writing the history of the Holocaust. It's a way of dealing with what I think uh, were the preconditions that made uh, genocide possible in uh, Nazi-occupied Europe. Um, and among those was the uh, legitimation of uh, mass death in wartime, which took place between 1914 and 1918. And the more I dug into the subject of the First World War, the more I realized that um, without the enormous casualties uh, in the killing fields of the First World War and the battles of the Somme or Verdun, uh, Auschwitz was unthinkable. Mm -hmm. It couldn't have happened without the First World War. Mm -hmm. And that's true on the small scale as well as the big. I mean, Hitler is a child of the First World War. He's, un he's unimaginable mm -hmm. uh, without 1914-18. And, and I think Lenin probably would have joined Trotsky to be a two-bit actor in the Bronx if the First World War hadn't broken out. Is They were just meaningless people who found a meaningful cause because the war created the opportunity for the weak link in the chain of capitalism to break. Mm -hmm. Why I, I did the individual books that I did are, uh, is a, a more complicated matter, but the, I think the, my impulse as an historian is to throw some light on the, the darkness of my early life uh, when so many people were killed. That, mm -hmm. um, in a way, the air of my childhood had uh, uh, had ashes in it. And I grew up with a taste of ashes in my mouth. Mm -hmm. To try to understand why that happened is something that I'd, I probably had been doing all along without knowing it. Mm -hmm. Would you like to find out? Yes, I think so. And you know, this, my mother's family was wiped out in Warsaw, and there's so many names, quite literally, the names mm -hmm. and the faces of my grandfather was part of an enormous family. He was the 10th of 11. And then when my great-grandmother died in childhood, childbirth, my great-grandfather married and had another seven. So there were 18 brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. um, I know my grandfather's name and my uncle Joseph's name, the one who survived from Theresienstadt, but all the others were murdered and so were their children and their children's children and everybody else in their families. I have no idea. Mm -hmm what they're called, so I'd, I'd like to have a glimpse mm -hmm. um, at, the, uh, at the family that was wiped out. Because uh, mm -hmm. my guess is it would be like looking in the mirror. Mm -hmm. And now, now that you're already speaking about the, the memory of the Holocaust and you've mentioned another instances of violence, um, kind of based on my own work where I look primarily at the Holocaust in German-occupied Soviet territories, so primarily in Belarus, uh, where we are really facing the, these problems of not having a lot of material traces or documentation to even identify who was killed, where, and when. Um, and I've been working with oral histories of survivors who did um, survive um, the Nazi genocide in World War II in Belarus, and who often talk about the ways that they were trying to come to terms with that past and, and with the fact that their relatives had been killed, 
but that they often actually don't know where they are, um, where they are buried, literally, or where they were killed. And some of the practices that people describe and in terms of how they remember, how they mourn, uh, very moving and, and kind of intellectually challenging. For example, there is one woman who um, was born in Gustino, a small village near Smolensk, and she knows that her family was killed in February 1942, um, and she wanted to find a place where she could go and mourn, where she could go remember them. Uh, but she lived in St. Petersburg, so she took a bucket of soil from near the mass grave um, in Gusino and brought it to St. Petersburg and buried it at the Jewish cemetery in St. Petersburg. So essentially creating a grave site. Um, so in your work on the Great War um, and other instances of violence, are there similar practices of memory that you came across that are much less well known to us um, kind of on the public level that you found similarly moving or stimulating to think about? Well, yes, I, you know, I believe one of the reasons why, uh, without the First World War, um, Auschwitz would never have happened, ever, uh, is that the First World War was the moment when a war defined as a killing machine, which they always are, uh, turned into a vanishing act. Um, half of those who died in the First World War, 10 million men, have no known graves. So the problem of mourning without a place um, is not linked to the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. It was the case, and I think this may be something you need to investigate yourself, that the graves you're looking at are on top of other graves, uh, not just the graves of the Stalinist mm -hmm. uh, murders, uh, but of the First World War. Two million mm -hmm. Russian soldiers died. Then the revolution happened, and that whole event was washed into a kind of um, margin of history, or mm -hmm. worse. Mm -hmm. um, one area that I think is really intriguing that probably has no equivalent, certainly not in Jewish culture, is a, the efflorescence of a belief in talking to the dead, spiritualism, which was worldwide in the First World War. And the reason is so many parents lost so many sons without knowing where they are or even knowing that they were dead, but they disappeared. Uh, that late 19th century ideas of uh, paranormal psychology uh, created a mass uh, market for charlatans and for people who suspended disbelief about the life of the mind after death. Mm -hmm. The structure of their seances, interestingly um, organized by women always, uh, was that the living have to be given permission to go on living by the dead. So what they heard while hearing, you know, holding each other's hands and turning down the, uh, the lights and seeing something move or whatever, uh, was their dead coming back to say, it's all right. Mm -hmm. You can go on living. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm with my friends, mm -hmm. with my comrades. And we're t you know, I'm talking about practices all over the world. Mm -hmm. Kaiser Wilhelm was part of this uh, world, too. I mean, there were all kinds of social uh, elites and completely... Uh, proletarian communities that believed in this. And I think the, uh, uh, the radical character of these social movements, which are clearly condemned by the traditional churches, um, was an alternative uh, to a real crisis in faith. Because no, none of the churches, none of the churches that we can identify uh, in Islam and Christianity or in the Jewish faith could handle the deluge 
of killing that went on in the First World War. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as a result, it's not that the sacred died, it moved elsewhere, it migrated. Mm -hmm. And I, in some ways, I think that uh, circumstance where parents had no idea whether their sons were alive or dead was probably uh, as dreadful as the position that you describe of, of people who have nowhere to go. They're sure that these Jews were murdered. But what about a parent who thinks, what if my son is in a hospital in Turkey or uh, he's gone mad and was picked up by somebody else by mistake? This unbelievable uncertainty mm -hmm. is what made the First World War so horrible. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the Nazis made sure that the, you know, the members of my family in Warsaw were completely dead. There was no, nobody I grew up with thought there was a doubt. But in the First World War, there were millions of men. Nobody had any idea what, what happened to them, and there was nowhere to go. So instead of that, war memorials were built. And war memorials matter not because uh, of any great either architectural or spiritual beauty, but because they are places to put names. And when you put the names down, you have a place for people to go. They're surrogate graves. Mm -hmm. um, and that is not possible uh, for the Holocaust. There is no surrogate grave. Jewish tradition doesn't have that as a, uh, an option. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, the, the First World War's practices were, um, were attempts not only to remember the fallen, but to resurrect damaged symbols mm -hmm. of the value of human life. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, the, the, the etching of a name on a you know, on the Umschlag plots, let's say I showed in Warsaw yesterday in my lecture, uh, they were first names, they're generic, they're not the family names, uh, but it's all the names that God gave. This strikes me as a much more terrifying uh, environment in which to work. I probably couldn't do your research, it's too hard. Um, but the fields of, uh, of empty tombs uh, is something that I really know about. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're all over the world. Mm -hmm. They're absolutely everywhere. No, and I think a lot of these practices are about re-establishing some kind of connection to the dead. I mean, I think it's, it's really trying to re-establish that connection, even through a symbolic place like a monument or that gravesite where she literally said, this is a place where I can go put down a candle and grieve, right? Um, but, I mean, you, you just mentioned the, the personal implications that, that some of the research um, has for us um, that we're doing. Um, I'm, I'm not a Jewish person, so for me there is not necessarily a family element involved in, in this kind of research. Um, I was born and raised in Germany, and a lot of my research comes more out of a sense of responsibility for, for not forgetting the past, for remembering the dead, um, but also for learning about how do, how do genocides, how do violences happen, and what can we do to prevent that essentially from happening, um, but also how can we find ethical ways of living with the past of violence that has been committed. Um, so I think there, there's a different impetus for me to, to look at some of these um, moments. Uh, but nevertheless, it is a challenging um, approach, and I've been thinking about these questions of how do we study destruction that essentially destroys itself, and in many ways, very specifically in recent days, when we hear about thousands of refugees dying in the Mediterranean Sea and nobody knows their names. 
Um, and I've been thinking about it and talking to some colleagues about what does that mean as a historian if we think ahead to a moment where, where the very contemporary moment is past and we would want to study this past and want to participate in historical remembrance of a crisis of, of refuge, of asylum that Europe hasn't seen for, for decades. Um, what would we deal with? What would be the situation um, in very similar, with very different ways, because it is not a concrete war. It is a protracted crisis that started in the early 1990s where people were trying to enter the European Union um, and were drowning at the borders. Um, so if you as a historian think about this moment and think ahead to the future and envision yourself trying to study this contemporary world, what challenges do you think we will have to consider and how could we address them maybe? based on your experiences of, of doing research? Well, I think I'm, I'm probably um, optimistic here. The reason is that um, the iconic figure of the 20th century, the refugee, appeared in 1914. Um, people who now take the face of the Syrian middle class, you know, these are professional people, educated, uh, who we see um, desperately trying to get away from the killing, um, I don't think they're in any way different from the uh, refugees that the Russian army uh, created by expelling from the Pale of Settlement uh, 500,000 Jews in 1915, whom they thought would be very happy to have German liberators uh, looking after them, as it were. This is the Russian point of view. Uh, the cruelty, the, the cynical exploitation of the, uh, of the homeless, are people who live with what, you know, Agamben calls uh, bare life. And I think the, the, the subject that you're referring to is exactly located in the crisis of the first year of the First World War and then thereafter when uh, the boundary between civilian and military targets and warfare faded and then disappeared. Mm -hmm. That's very true. Um, and then speaking of, of other instances of violence that you already um, evoked and, and thinking about the Holocaust, that we also need to think about other instances of, of genocide, for example. Um, recently, you have been working somewhat more on the Armenian genocide. You've spoken publicly about it. What are some of the major challenges that you have faced? And then in different contexts, I'd like to hear about what different contexts that you're engaging in, because you have been speaking in Turkey, you've been speaking in Europe, you're giving talks in the United States. What are some of the challenges that you see in, in talking about the Armenian genocide and in, in an appropriate memory of that genocide? Well, the first difficulty is what I call essentialism, that only Armenians can talk about it, uh, as if the only people who can write the history of Islam are Muslim, or of Protestant, the Reformation are Protestants, or of the Holocaust are Jews. Um, fortunately, a large number of people recognize that essentialism, that only we who suffer know, uh, is a, an impossible position to defend. Mm -hmm. um, so the challenge is to break through ethnic bias mm -hmm. um, into saying it doesn't matter what were the origins of the speaker. What matters is the strength of the speech and the research on which it's based or the thinking on which it's based. And, you know, that's true in African-American history and all kinds of other fields, we know this. So one of the difficulties is to um, claim um, the right to address 
the Armenian genocide as a universal uh, violation of human rights, mm -hmm. and not as an ethnic event alone, which of course it was. And one reason why I've had trouble with this is that I've called for the comparison and perhaps contrast among Armenians to look at the way they remember the victims of the genocide of 1915-16. On the 23rd of April of this year, the uh, Catholicos of the Armenian Apostolic Church um, canonized 1,500,000 Armenian saints, the victims of the genocide. In my view, that is an understandable gesture on the part of a church that has always been at the center of Armenian life. Um, and in which politics and, and faith have been very much elided. Mm -hmm. um, but my claim is that, that martyrdom is a, is, a, is a word that has lost its meaning, and it probably lost it long before the Armenian Genocide. Mm -hmm. Because to use it for 1,500,000 victims of the, uh, of the Kurdish and Ottoman Turkish forces, paramilitaries and others who murdered, raped, strangled, and basically either starved or uh, or otherwise committed them to a life in the desert, the Mesopotamian desert. It does no good to, for us to understand that for, for the simple reason that over centuries martyrs have been people who've chosen to affirm their faith under circumstances where death is sometimes necessary. Mm -hmm. uh, and for me, it, it makes no sense whatsoever to talk about 500,000 Armenian children making a choice or even a, few, a child who's a few months old making a choice to affirm her faith in God. It, it, it simply seems surrealistic. Mm -hmm. um, very learned uh, Orthodox Jews in the middle of the Warsaw Ghetto itself confronted the, exactly the same problem. It's not different from that of the Armenian Genocide. And they came to the conclusion that the way to sanctify the name of the Lord under these circumstances, where everybody is a dead person walking, is to sanctify God's name by living, not by dying. Mm -hmm. So they created this amazing archive called Onek Shabbat, or the joys of the Sabbath, to describe their lives, not their deaths. Their deaths were ever present. Uh, when these people put the archive together in the Warsaw Ghetto, they were, they were being picked off like flies. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet they kept doing it. Well, that example to me shows that there are, more, there are many more ways than the sacred of remembering the dead of catastrophe and, and injustice. Mm -hmm. That statement offends. It does. Mm -hmm. But you know, there is a moment when I think we're in the truth business. If we don't speak what we see to be the truth, then we, we, we better do something else, maybe join a political campaign or start selling uh, stocks on the stock market. But we, I think we are. Mm -hmm. We have a responsibility, um, I think, to tell the truth about what we believe. Uh, happened in the past and what are the consequences or significance of those events. Uh, and uh, no, people aren't going to like it. So the Armenians in April, when I gave this talk, there were a number of them who simply didn't, didn't like being criticized for canonizing uh, the dead. And what right do you have to speak about this? Um, on the other hand, um, there are Turks who are extremely angry at the use of the term genocide itself. So I've had that trouble speaking out in public in the same place, in Istanbul, but on other venues. Mm -hmm. I've had trouble with uh, my dear colleagues, uh, many of whom think that if you speak in the 
public world outside of the academy, you betray the trust uh, that's given in us to be separate uh, from the population in which we live. Uh, I never believed that for a moment. Uh, but after I did a television series some time ago, uh, you know, I was made well aware of the fact that, and this was in, in Cambridge University, but it could have been anywhere. It could have been here in Washington University as well, uh, that many of our, our colleagues are, uh, are actors manqués, and they get extremely jealous when someone else speaks uh, out uh, and maybe even gets listened to on television or radio. There's mm -hmm. deep ambivalence among academics. Mm -hmm who don't like the idea of public history. Um, some people think if you speak simply, you must be simple-minded. Or if you describe a, a past in a way that doesn't allow us to do what we've been trained to do, to say on the one hand and then on the other hand, we, we have to give a judgment. And the judgment clearly is uh, limited in its universality, and then we're betraying the trade. So when you ask about the difficulties of doing public history, it's both, I think, putting yourself in the middle of ethnic quarrels in which people die, they still die over these. And the second is to uh, um, make, take a step that frankly I can do, uh, but you can't yet, you don't have tenure. When you have tenure, I'd urge you to go into public history, mm -hmm. uh, but not before because the risks, the risks are greater than perhaps we're prepared to recognize. Well, we, can, we, can, we can try to change that. Because um, I think you're making a very strong case for, for the fact that historians need to be engaged in, in these more public debates about history and memory, um, specifically by kind of unearthing a historical account that kind of includes multiple positions and that acknowledges the diversity of experience um, that we see um, in certain historical events. I think there is definitely an ethical responsibility that we have as historians to also bring back what would we find out and the knowledge that we have to the public. Um, because otherwise, one could say we participate in a process of piling more and more violence and neglect on top of each other, right, in some ways. Um, which brings me to another topic that um, you've been working on more recently, is the notion of silence. Um, you've been writing about different forms of silence, um, both in historiography but also in public memory. And you make the very strong argument that silence is essentially part of cultural memory, that it is part of processes of remembering, um, but it also has elements of forgetting. Some of the great questions of historical inquiry in the 20th century are uh, about how people uh, heal. How do they go through dreadful things and really be wounded by them, and we can mean that in many different ways, and come out as recognizable human beings? How, do, how does that happen? And I think it's a mystery. It's one on which um, we know very little. But for all of those who were damaged in the Second World War that you know about, and for all of those who were damaged in the First World War that I know about, there were an astonishing number of people who came out of it with a sense of decency and, uh, and humanity, and I don't understand that. I find that astonishing. I, I can understand how someone goes through those dreadful things and is totally embittered. Some of my family came out of the camps were, were like that. I can understand, too, how people uh, join radical movements, left, right, center, doesn't matter what you want. I can see the anger that comes out of being uh, dismembered as a human being. Um, and then, if you're lucky, put together partially. But what about those who go through the same things and come out entire? That, to me, is a miracle. And I don't understand that. So the, the, the point about silence is that we historians, I think, ought to observe at least a small dose of humility 
when we deal with such things as the Holocaust or, or the Great War or any other uh, mass conflict like that, because there's so much of it we, we can't understand. That brought me to silence. There's a sense that I'm scratching the surface of an enormous mountain of suffering, some of which I, I can feel because I've seen it from my earliest days, and some of which I, I just don't understand. Well, I think this is a great way to end this conversation. Um, thank you very much for joining us here in St. Louis today. You're welcome.